Alright, our text today is Ephesians 4, verse 11. Please can you turn there now. Now I want to start by telling you a little story. So, a well-known coach was once asked, how much does college football contribute to the national physical fitness picture? Nothing, the coach replied abruptly. Why not? The startled interviewer asked. Well, said the coach, the way I see it, you have 22 men down on the field desperately needing a rest and 40,000 people in the stands desperately needing some exercise. (laughs) Does that describe us? Do we come to church only to watch when we ought to be participating? Is that what God wants? In many ways, a church may resemble a spectator sport because there are players with name positions and rows of people watching so that if we were just to walk in cold off the street it might look as though the congregation is just there to observe. But as we shall see in our next sermon and through this one as well, entertainment was never God's intention for his people. Remember that the church in God's eyes isn't just a flash building with a, you know, a pointy thing on the roof and lots of crosses inside but it's a a collective body of people saved by Christ. How will those people be organised? And what is their purpose? Who will lead them and why? Well, let's read our passage, Ephesians 4.11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Well, these are very familiar terms to Christians. We read them all the time in the pages of the Bible and we hear about them working today and we almost always know some. But what do they actually do? How does Scripture define them? Well, to start with, what is the authority behind these appointments? Did they come from man's imagination or were they put in place by God? Well, our verse tells us that it is he himself. And those verses just before it have been describing Christ's glorious ascent far above the heavens for the purpose of filling all things. So we can be certain then that it is Jesus who is the one whose name gives power to the call of papers. In fact, this is made very clear in the original Greek. So those papers are not to be ignored either by those who are called to that service or in fact by those who benefit from that service. They were drawn up to show the authority given to Jesus when he perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. There's a chain here. God gave Christ to be the head of the church. Christ, in turn, gave those ministries to the church who is intended to be an expression of God's will on earth. And in that role, the passing on is not yet finished because the work of the church, and by that I mean the whole church, is the gospel. It is the passing on of Jesus to sinful humans. Passed on, passed on, and passed on. So, may I say again, this is a business of the most serious sort and it's very worthy of our complete attention. Well, there are four or five categories of service listed here depending on how you read the Greek and they may be grouped together in two large ways. Well, the first three, they are wanderers. Okay, they go from place to place. Apostles, prophets and evangelists who will preach wherever they find an opportunity. Whereas pastors and teachers work in a fixed position such as a congregation. But for all of them, their focus is the word of God. The first two, 
are concerned with originating and explaining or arguing the case for its message and the others in applying it to individual people's lives. Now we can use that word originating because factually big chunks of both the Old and the New Testament were literally written by prophets and apostles. What we read in our book today has its origin in the spirit-inspired words of those men. The evangelist's work deals with the beginning of Christian life. They deliver the baby, if you like, while the teaching pastor is involved with the development and growth of that life, making sure that it has a healthy spiritual diet, that diseases receive proper attention, and that they get plenty of spiritual fresh air and exercise. Well, let's have a look at each of those ministries individually. And of course, we'll deal with apostles first. Now, an apostle, the word apostle signifies someone who is sent forth by another. Very simple. Well, that could be a delegate, that could be a commissioner or an ambassador who's sent out on a mission, orders or with a commission, and with the authority of the one who sent them. And it's a Greek word, apostolos, and they were officially commissioned for the position of task. So it's like, Peter, I want you to go to this place and do that thing. Okay, that's the commissioning. In the Bible, apostolos is used as a specific and unique title for the 13 men who Christ personally chose and commissioned to authoritatively proclaim the gospel and lead the early church. These 13 apostles were not only all called directly by by, by Jesus, but all of them were witnesses of his resurrection. And they were given direct revelation of God's word to explain its meaning with authority, the gift of healing, and the power to cast out demons. Thus, through God's power in them, not only did their words carry great weight, but they were able to back up those claims with signs and miracles. Those revelations of the word expressed as apostolic teachings and writings have a great deal of importance for us because they are what we now call the New Testament. Now, I've mentioned that this word apostolos was a unique title set aside for 13 specific men. And this has implications for the use of that word today. Because once the foundation for the church had been laid by them, well, there was no longer a need for this function. Did, God did a very complete work through them. Therefore, there is no other way we can establish a truth about Jesus and no new revelation that can be made about him outside of what the original apostles have given. We're not going to be adding to the Bible, folks. And this is great news because... It supports scripture's authority and place as the sure foundation of the church. The goalposts never shift. There is no chance of a pastor in a village somewhere in, say, Guatemala, who has a new and vital revelation that we need to know, or we will lose our our salvation. It just isn't going to happen. And this is one of the reasons that we can say with assurance that scripture is both authoritative and sufficient that it is always reliable and it is always able to guide and instruct and discipline us whenever and whoever we are. So anyone we might hear claiming to be an apostle in the sense of Peter or Paul is making a false claim. There is no need and it isn't possible for there to be apostles like this in the church today. There is a similar term, apostoloi, that is used in a general sense of men like Barnabas and Timothy. And these men were messengers of the church. 
Whereas the original 13 were messengers of Jesus Christ. So if you think about it, it's a pretty big difference. So one could be an apostoloi in the modern church. However, this isn't the word that's been used by Paul here. And frankly, given the importance of the work of the apostles and the potential consequences for claiming their authority are so serious, I personally wouldn't ever care to use it to describe my own work. Next, I want to talk about prophets. One definition of a prophet is someone who is divinely inspired to communicate God's will to his people and to disclose the future to them. So there are two parts to the work, communicating and foretelling, but they are crucially under the direction and authority of God. When we look through the Bible to see how these two gifts have been used by the prophets, we will see that not all of them did both. A prophet who was a prophet was sometimes a foreteller who declared future events, you know, like Isaiah did when he was prophesying the birth of Jesus and other aspects of Jesus' life. Or they might talk about end times, for example, John in the book of Revelation. But they also commonly gave warnings related to individuals and nations' behaviour. If you do this, then this is what's going to happen to you. But more often the prophet was a fourth teller, communicating divinely revealed truth for the purpose of sound doctrinal instruction with the goal to lay a foundation and build up or edify the body. And this fourth telling sense is the one that Paul is using here. We're getting prophetic information from Paul about how God has arranged to provide his church with ongoing direction. It isn't Paul speaking through his own mind, although it is in his words. It is God speaking through him so that we can understand the message. When we think about it, it may may sound like prophets and apostles are the same thing, but they aren't. It's true that sometimes apostles might act as prophets, but it doesn't work the other way around. The apostle provides the big picture story of what is true in Christ, but the prophet interprets that story and breaks it down and explains it so that it becomes very clear, vital and compelling. In fact, the very word prophet suggests this because it comes from a Greek word which means to cause to shine, with the prefix pro, which means before. Thus, a prophet is one who stands before and causes the word of the apostle to shine. And 2 Peter 1.19 is a very good illustration of this. It reads, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you will do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's a typical cartoon picture of somebody getting an idea? A light, yes, a little light going on, yeah? That's a bit of a hint up there on the screen, by the way. And that's exactly the the purpose of the prophet words, to take them from just being words in the air or squiggles on a page to make them living truth in our hearts that excites and inspires us. I want to read some more of the same passage because it confirms what we've been saying that the prophet's work is not just that of a human which is riddled with errors. It can be trusted completely because it comes from godly inspiration. So it goes on to read, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any prophet interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, 
but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So prophets spoke with the same authority as apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You know that word inspiration is very important to each one of us right now because we are all doing it. Because that same word can be used to describe the act of taking a breath. What does inspiring air do for us? Well, it invigorates. It refreshes and revives. It gives life because without it, we will die. And what will the inspiration of the Holy Spirit do? Invigorate, refresh and revive us. Although quite marvellously he will do more than just give us fleshly life. He will help us into eternal life. Praise God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. The combination of that marvellous gift of the Holy Spirit and the New Testament writings that we've been talking about well, that means that prophets too will not be found in modern times. We have no need for them. Let's move on now to the gift of evangelists. Well, this isn't such an unfamiliar term because if we're here as a Christian, then at some point we must have met one. Evangelists are people who have a special gift of being able to explain the gospel to others in a way that draws them to salvation. They are responsible for growing the numbers in the church and as such they have a very important role. They do this by helping unbelievers to understand that they are in bondage to sin and then, by explaining the gospel message, bring them to a place where they they will proclaim Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. The biblical model of the evangelist doesn't suggest someone who goes around denouncing sin loudly in terms of fire and brimstone, but rather a more gentle pointing to the way out of sin. It is inescapable that sin is to be squarely faced though. After all, it is the root cause of all heartache and misery. However, the evangelist is there as a deliverer, not as a condemner. Unfortunately, this message has been taken too far in many cases today. Some churches are so focused on producing, and I use that word producing because the process has been streamlined to be like that of a production line in a factory, they are so focused on producing new believers that they are careful to stay away from any mention of sin in case it might make potential converts uncomfortable. You know, I've even heard of cases where church members are encouraged not, not to bring their Bibles to church for fear that it will make unbelievers in the congregation feel inadequate or uncomfortable. Frankly, I find that appalling. What nonsense. What an outrage that needy people should be led to believe that they are Christians when they are not. I pray for every one of these people that the Holy Spirit would bring a true evangelist into their lives who will lead them through genuine repentance and conversion and that the ones controlling this process will be convicted of their error. For the message of the gospel to genuinely have taken root, there must be a balance between personal recognition of sin, repentance, and rejoicing in salvation. This is the work of the genuine evangelist. And it can be done by all kinds of people as God has gifted them, men and women, people who are well educated, and people who are not. 
It can be done anywhere, in homes or churches or on the street, to single people or to crowds. In fact, it would be the most common of the giftings we have heard about today. In fact, it might be your gifting. I encourage, God, I encourage you to ask God to show you if this is your gift. I know it's quite a frightening prospect. It certainly scares me. But consider the joy not just for yourself, but in heaven when a new Christian is born. In Luke 15, to illustrate this point, Jesus tells, tells a parable about a woman who has lost some money and then finds it. She, he finishes this by saying, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, you and I have the possibility of bringing joy to the halls of heaven. What value is our fear then in the face of that? Well, let's try to put that behind us and fill our church with new Christians to the glory of God. Way back near the beginning of the sermon, I said that there were four or five giftings depending on how you read the Greek for this passage. This is possible, I'm sorry, this is because it is possible to understand that our final terms for discussion, pastors and teachers, are actually one and the same thing. The two nouns are connected in Greek by the word chi. And no, I don't mean that kind of chi, which often has the meaning that is, or in particular. So we could read our text as saying some pastors and teachers, one and the same thing. An additional piece of evidence that supports this idea is that this and, this chi, differs from the other ands, which are the word d used in this verse. However, there are also good arguments for pastors and teachers being separate, separate kinds of work. So, it's hard to tell. But what is certain is that we do see these gifts in real life exercised both together and separately. For example... All pastors teach, since teaching is an essential part of pastoral ministry. But not all teachers are pastors. Pastor means shepherd. So a pastor is a man who cares for, protects, and leads the flock of the church. And this is a lot easier said than done, because caring for a church family involves a balance of ruling the church, but at the same time serving it. The pastor is the leader but he is also a servant. It's not an easy feat. And it's impossible unless the pastor stays strong in the Lord, praying and taking time to study his word. He has to be wise in knowing when to be firm and when to yield to the ideas of others. Unfortunately, this of course means that he will have to live with not everybody being pleased with all of his decisions all of the time. In the end, though, he knows that the final accountability is to God himself, which, if you think about it, is a very serious responsibility indeed. In this church, the office of pastor is included in the eldership. So, whilst Colfain may practically make day-to-day decisions as the man on the spot, he is not the final and sole authority for the larger ones. These will be made jointly by the elders, who may in turn take that matter back to the congregation if it's a really large or important matter. And we use the system because we believe it's consistent with the model we see in Scripture 
and because it helps to reduce the pastor's burden. Let's move on to teachers. Teachers are by far the most complicated of the gifts we are discussing today. They, um, they teach. Actually, it's a little more difficult than that because there are a few things we should be looking for in a gifted teacher. Firstly, they are not merely there to pass on facts, but to challenge the moral and spiritual position of the flock. For example, the process of sanctification has not ever been known to be encouraged by merely knowing that the word chide appears seven times in the King James Version of the Bible. But, when the, pastor, when the teacher can open up to us why that word is in that part of Scripture and what it means for our lives, then they are really teaching. Secondly, the only authority a church teacher has comes from the Bible. If they depart from Scripture and use other sources of information as their main text, no matter how wisely they may have been written or how plausible they sound, then they are no longer teaching truth and they have no authority. We should not be listening to that and it has no power over us. Lastly, because scripture is the ultimate authority, we should expect clear direction from our teachers, not wishy-washy opinions without any conclusion. In preaching lessons, I've heard the style described as failing to land the aeroplane. The teacher goes around and around the runway and on and on, but never hits the ground. Perhaps then it would be kinder to all if they were just shot down. And if you look, you will find a bag of tomatoes under your seat. (laughs) Whilst it's obviously helpful for a teacher to have a speaking style that really grips our interest, this is of less importance than their ability to challenge, educate and transform us through the use of Scripture. There is a responsibility to listen on the part of the hearer too. We will do well to remember that, although some entertainment is of value in a sermon, it is not by any means the main reason for its delivery. So that if we turn our attention to matters of, say, fishing, for example, we may miss important things that God is trying to tell us. Likewise, those sermons that are perhaps excessively entertaining may well be light on useful truth. Now, while we are on the topic of pastors or thereabouts, I want to share some statistics with you. They are from a 1991 survey conducted by the Fuller Institute of Church Growth. And I know these are old numbers, but I don't imagine that they will have changed much. And this showed the following to be true of pastors. 90% of them work more than 46 hours a week. 80% believe pastoral ministry affected their families negatively. 33% believe ministry was a hazard to their family. 75% reported a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. 50% felt themselves unable to meet meet the demands of the job. 90% felt inadequately trained to cope with the ministry demands. 70% say they have a lower self-esteem now compared to when they started in ministry. 40% reported serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. And 70% do not have someone they consider to be a close friend. 
what are we doing to our pastors? I could go on and on with statistics like these about the effects on pastors' health, their families, and how many consequently leave the ministry every year. But I believe the point is well made. We should treasure our pastors. They are consuming themselves for our sake, pouring themselves out day by day in so many ways. Let us then gather around our pastor. Support him, encourage him and pray for him and his family. Give thanks to God for him and ask God to bless him in his ministry. I believe that if that is our heart, one of love and generosity, then God will honour our prayers to make this church a very wonderful place for all who worship here. At this point, it might be fair to say that the runway is in sight. But before we touch down, we must deal with the so what questions. So what that God has provided these various gifts? Well, just for a change, today I have brought some tools along for a demonstration. Hmm. Right, this, folks, is a renovator tool, okay? And we see this endlessly advertised on television at the moment. And the man with that deep, mock, sincere voice tells us that it does the job of hundreds of other tools. It's quite loud as well. Well, here are some of the other tools. First of all, a skill saw, okay? This is the builder's right hand. If I need to cut pieces of timber like this across, I can do that all day. If I need to rip them down the length, I can do that all day as well with my skill saw. With my renovator's tool? Hmm, I wonder. Well, the first thing that they don't tell you is that these little blades are really expensive. I don't think they're going to last very long. The second thing is it doesn't make a very straight line, which isn't terribly helpful. And the last thing is, well, it's just too much work, and it will explode. (laughs) Then we have a drill. Now, that's not a drill. This is a drill. Now, it's true that I have made holes with my renovator's tool, but uh, none of them have been perfectly round, and uh, none of them have been through concrete, which is something I can do with this machine. Then we have, lastly, you'll be pleased to know, an angle grinder. Now, I have cut through some steel nails with my renovator's tool, but um, if I were to, say, get a piece of 10 mil plate like this, Well, I think I might have a bit of a problem. Now, it's true that the renovator tool is a very useful one and that it can do things that some other tools can't. But to suggest that it is a replacement for those specifically designed to do the job, it's just nonsense. It's like that with the church. You know, Christ has provided with its guidance with exactly the right tools. 
He has given specific gifts to specific people for specific purposes at specific times. When he needed to give birth to the new church, well, he used apostles and prophets. When the baby had grown and needed different types of care, he provided pastors and teachers. And evangelists, of course, have always been gainfully employed. He is doing his work carefully as a craftsman, not with whatever might be at hand, but with exactly the right tool, sharp and expertly used. These are the so what's then. We can be wholly certain that the business of a church that confesses Jesus as Lord and relies on the authority of Scripture will be under divine control and divinely appointed humans not just a random collection of well-meaning and possibly very well-qualified people. In that godly space, we will hear truth that can be confidently applied to our lives. But make no mistake, that application is our personal responsibility, not the pastors or teachers. The knowledge of that divine organisation is so precious because let's face it, There are so many choices out there that it can seem almost impossible to decide which is the right one. So the knowledge that we are in a space that is organised by Christ ought to give us hope and consolation and comfort. The course of our lives isn't at the mercy of random forces but in the loving hands of our Lord Jesus. The next thing is that as a consequence of understanding this text, we should begin to see our pastors and teachers and evangelists in a different light. Their authority is real, and so their message is too. They are the engine room of the church. Therefore, our responses to their work ought to respect that, providing that what we are hearing is consistent with Scripture. How will we know that it is consistent? Well, we've already spoken about who the responsibility lies with for applying scriptural lessons learned. Point your finger at your your chest and say, if it is to be, it lies with me. Yes. Similarly, we ought not to be automatically taking what we hear from the pulpit for granted. We must be searching the scriptures on our own. And we're never going to be let off the hook on that one. On casual thought, this may seem to be a not particularly interesting text about what other people have to do while we sit in the pew. Yeah? It would be a great shame, though, if in thinking that way we miss the message that is there about responding. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers may do everything they can with the gifting Christ has given them but it will all be for nothing if there is no one to respond. Whilst the Lord has put in place people with specific giftings to grow and maintain the body of the church, it isn't a license to lie back and let them entertain us or work us into shape. We will see this very specifically in the next part of the text. This is very definitely a team effort. So, whilst we may be sitting on the sidelines... They really, really need us to be playing on the field right now. Will you do that? Will you join the team?
Or will you be content just to watch? May the Holy Spirit convict you to search God's will for your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you know us so well. Thank you that you have provided these men and women for us as guidance. Lord, I pray that most of all we would see the need within ourselves to follow that guidance. Not just to watch it, but to take it and run with it. And Lord, that we would also be open to the idea that you may be calling some of us individually to take up these offices. May your Holy Spirit work in us to show us what is your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.